to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about why the Democrats may lose upcoming midterm elections here in the U.S. Also going to be discussing uh, uh, some ongoing conflicts and contradictions inside the uh, Venezuelan opposition around the quote unquote uh, interim government of Juan Guaido. Also going to be touching on uh, the United Nations saying that uh, different governments around the world's pledges around uh, emissions is not enough to uh, address the climate situation. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Natalia Marquez, a writer and organizer from New York City. Natalia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Natalia, you recently published a piece on um, People's Dispatch entitled Why Democrats Could Lose in the Midterms. And within that piece, you you note a number of things that we we tend to highlight quite often uh, here on the show. Uh, The Democrat Party's uh, lack of a real uh, positive program and how uh, a lot of what they're putting forth is simply not addressing uh, many of the pressing issues uh, uh, at the top of the minds of the electorate in the United States, I mean, namely issues of the economy and uh, uh, inflation and things like this. And, you know, you lay out some polls and some other things that I think uh, spell out uh, a a similar sort of deal. And so I'm wondering, Natalia, why it is basically that uh, you think that the Democrats are under threat in uh, the midterms. Of course, the elections themselves and the results are are yet to be seen, uh, but it does seem like uh, there's more than a little cause for concern uh, from their end. Yes, yes. So, um, you know, many are saying that the Democrats could lose really badly in the upcoming midterms, you know, um, for a very long time, like a solid, um, you know, majority of people in the United States identified with the Democratic Party that in late 2021 shifted over to the Republican Party. And we're seeing now, you know, some polls are saying that um, more people are or rather an equivalent amount of people are identifying with Democratic candidates as Republican candidates, which is rare. Usually it's um, more so the Democratic candidates um, and, you know, the people who are going to vote Democratic don't necessarily think that their party is going to win, you know, and this is for a number of reasons. But I think the central reason is that um, the Democrats have not really campaigned on this issue of the economy and inflation. You know, right now, uh, various polls are showing that by far the majority of, of people, the, the biggest issues for the majority of people in the United States is the economy and is inflation. You know, people are um, struggling to buy gas. They're struggling to buy groceries. Um, you know, there's a housing crisis across the country. These, you know, bread and butter issues are really what the average American workers are thinking about. But the Democrats have nothing to campaign on, right? They are the party in power. In power. They are the party that has overseen this inflation crisis and that many are blaming for, for the economic crises that are um, really ravaging the nation. And so um, the Democrats are not offering up a program and saying that they're going to drastically change the way that they've been running the country. Instead, you know, Biden is 
bragging about how U.S. inflation is not as bad as the rest of the world, right? Which really falls on deaf ears for um, the millions of Americans that have been struggling to afford basic necessities. Yeah, and uh, on a similar note, Natalia, I want to ask about what kind of program uh, would uh, the Democrats need to put forth to, you know, uh, uh, really have a strong showing or at the very least improve their chances at the ballot box in November? Because uh, in your piece, you note, uh, interestingly, that uh, over the past few decades, whichever party uh, controls the presidency usually loses control of Congress during the midterms, which, you know, comes during uh, kind of the middle point of of a presidential term. But historically, that hasn't always been the case. But it it typically happens that uh, when parties do maintain power in that way, it was after uh, some substantial uh, social shifts uh, that, you know, signaled an improvement in the lives of people in this country and therefore inclined them to uh, vote for them. And so uh, I think that means then that it isn't impossible for the Democrats to uh, maintain control uh, in Congress uh, and elsewhere following uh, the uh, um, uh, midterms as people will, you know, uh, be choosing representatives for all 435 seats in uh, the House of Representatives with no small portion of Senate seats as well. Um, But it seems as though, frankly, something rather drastic and completely different than uh, what the Democrats have been putting forth uh, would be necessary here. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, to some extent, you know, it's it's given knowledge. People take it for granted that um, the party that controls the presidency does usually lose control of the Congress during the midterms. This has been the case for the past few presidencies. But historically, this hasn't been the case, and it doesn't have to be this way, right? So the Republicans were in power for a solid few decades after, after um, President Lincoln Um, you know, declared the Emancipation Proclamation, ended slavery, um, and the Democrats were in power for a solid few decades um, after uh, the New Deal, um, you know, FDR's New Deal. So, um, you know, these programs, um, what they have in common is that they were transformational. They changed the political landscape of the United States. Um, and they were also not given, right? They were not just handed to people. The people of the United States fought for the ending of slavery and fought for the New Deal um, and fought quite hard. You know, these were fought and won for by the working class. Um, But, you know, nowadays it doesn't seem like either party is willing to listen to, you know, the struggles of the people on the ground at all. Um, And you have a case where um, a party, you know, ascends to the presidency. Um, You know, the status quo continues. People continue to suffer. There's dissatisfaction. The approval rating for the president drops. And then a new party um, takes control of the Congress because the people only have two options. It's it's either Republican or Democrat in the two-party system in the United States. It just happens to be that both parties are essentially the same and that they do not offer um, a transformational economic program. Um, and as a result, you know, the power has really oscillated between the two, right? It's like picking the lesser of two evils every single time um, you vote on your representatives, right? Um, and so um, obviously, like, there are so many other things that Biden could be doing in order to offer, you know, not even um, to even offer a transformational program, but just to offer a little bit more than than the Democratic Party currently has to offer, right? 
So we've seen that Biden has um, pardoned um, simple marijuana possession on this federal level. Now he's um, pledging to crack down on junk fees and um, that banks um, charge their customers, which is really sort of a non-policy, right? Um, he says that he is examining the fees as if um, that's some sort of concrete action when He's the president of the United States. Surely he can be doing more than examining fees. Um, but a few of the reforms that Biden has, you know, sort of implemented at the 11th hour really beg the question, if Biden is able to do these things before the midterms, why didn't he do them in the first 100 days of his presidency? Um, right. You know, his closing argument for the midterms is incredibly weak. He ran on the promise of a transformational um, social spending program, build back better, trillions of dollars were to be um, invested in um, the working class. That failed after he acceded to conservative Democrats in the party. Um, he campaigned on um, the $15 minimum wage. He abandoned that very quickly. Um, right now, he's sending billions of dollars in weapons to Ukraine when I think Americans on both sides of the political spectrum are arguing that that's wrong and that makes no sense. You know, even the extreme right is is against that. Um, and so, you know, it really shows that Democrats don't have anything to offer that's new for workers. Um, and Republicans are really out strategizing them in many ways. Right. They also have nothing to offer, but they're spending 44 million on campaign ads talking about how the Democrats have failed in the economy. And since, you know, the Democrats are the party in power during a massive inflation crisis, it looks really bad for them, even if the other side has nothing to offer. Um, and really, that's kind of at, at the center of it. Neither party has anything to offer. And so the power is always just going to shift between them um, as people, you know, try to find some sort of transformational agenda. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's um, worth noting that not only have Republicans spent uh, $44 million on campaign ads, at the very same time, we know that Democrats are spending tens of millions amplifying uh, Trump as candidates in at least nine states for the midterms in uh, the same sort of strategy and tactic that failed uh, Hillary Clinton in uh, 2016. And it's really interesting when we talk about the flip side of things in terms of how the Republicans are maneuvering in this moment, Natalia, because I think you're correct, even though, you know, they also aren't putting forth any positive or transformative plan for uh, poor working and oppressed people in this country. I mean, uh, they are very good. They're actually quite skilled at uh, presenting themselves as if they are, in fact, doing that and also are pretty good at pointing out some of the legitimate issues with uh, the Democrats and their platform or a lack thereof, and thereby positioning themselves as if they're the, the champions for uh, the struggling people of this country, which, of course, as we know, is not the case, as both uh, Democrats and Republicans are uh, ruling class formations within this uh, uh, political frame. And so it, it, this, I think, takes on a whole other level of relevance 
amid what we see here on the show as a, a serious assault on a, a democratic rights, right? So we have this coming from the far right and then from the center-right Democrats is basically nothing, like no pushback or, or fight back or anything. And these other little uh, half measures and non-solutions that the Democrats put forth also, I think, are just not enough uh, necessarily to, you know, bring about some passionate or energetic uh, base of support. And so it seems to me, Natalia, that we're living in a moment that I think in several ways are almost sort of the culmination of years and years and years of how mainstream politics have been operating in the U.S. to the detriment of poor working and uh, oppressed people. And the more this goes on and uh, uh, the, the more intense this political crisis grows, it just seems to become more and more clear that the center cannot hold. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, Americans have really been tossed back and forth in this in this political game, essentially, right? You know, Trump um, campaigned on the slogan, Make America Great Again. Um, his campaign was all about, um, you know, rooting out the Washington swamp, taking out all these establishment politicians, you know, imprisoning some of them, really, really changing um, the status quo in Washington for better or for worse. Um, he ascended to the presidency and did none of this. You know, he essentially behaved like a neocon. Um, you know, millions of Americans have died of COVID-19 as a result of his irresponsible handling of the crisis. And this is really what voted, what eventually, you know, got him out of the presidency. The fact that he failed in this, in this really key moment so poorly, failed to address the, the COVID crisis um, and, you know, essentially resulted in the deaths of millions, you know, and then you have Biden ascend to the presidency and there's a massive inflation crisis, right? Um, partly as a result of the fact that um, Russia was essentially pushed into um, invading Ukraine after all of these, you know, NATO provocations, essentially, right? And so now you have another crisis that the American people are struggling with. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, I'm, I'm not going to vote for the guy that, that made this happen the same way with Trump, right? Um, and so both parties, when they've ascended to power, have shown that they've done nothing and have nothing to offer for working people. Um, and so it's time, I mean, it's really time for like an independent strategy, you know, that's not uh, linked to either party because both parties are, are funded by Wall Street. Both parties are beholden to their donors. They're incapable of putting forward a transformational program because that would go against the, the values and the interests of the people who fund them, right? Um, and so, you know, it's important to have a political party that's independent of the ruling class in the U.S. Otherwise, you're always going to have ruling class policies push forward this false idea of, of slow reform, um, this false idea that um, the, the president is completely limited, his hands are tied and whenever it comes to um, instituting reforms that really help the working people of the U.S. And you're going to have these, these sorts of, of hollow slogans, right? So um, Trump campaigned on, on Make America Great Again, and Hillary campaigned on America's Already Great, which um, really fell on deaf ears, and I think still is falling on deaf ears for the millions of Americans who, who are still struggling. I mean, the, the this is, you know, a separate issue, but 
um, the nation's report card um, came out recently and the way that um, the education in the United States has, has plummeted. Um, right. You know, that's just another example of, of the, you know, the varying crises that all of this country are enduring. Um, and I think that, um, you know, all, all people are, you know, in these sort of crises and they're, they're looking for something transformational and they're not finding it. And I think that, you know, people need to really take that energy and seize on this moment to present um, a new radical vision of what, you know, the U.S. economy could really look like. Yeah. And, you know, what you've just put forth there, Natalia, is really the uh, mission statement of our show by any means necessary. When uh, the ruling class and its uh, political operatives in the Democrat and Republican parties make it painfully clear that they're not willing to do anything really to uh, support the needs of millions of struggling people in this country and the way that uh, this system, this imperialist capitalist system impacts us, not just in the U.S., but around the globe, well, then it's clear that our only solution is to develop that kind of independent political force that you're describing. There must be a mass militant class conscious movement across lines of division that is developed and strengthened and as the vehicle for real uh, systemic and long lasting change here in the U.S. Because if the people currently in charge, stay in charge. Well, that doesn't bode well for our class, for our planet or for humanity itself. But we thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the state of the so-called interim government of Venezuela. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ricardo Vaz, political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Ricardo, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, Ricardo, it's being uh, reported that uh, some of the anti-government forces in Venezuela are uh, uh, basically coming together to try to oust uh, Juan Guaido as uh, the supposed or self-proclaimed interim president of Venezuela. And uh, uh, namely, this seems to be a a dispute amongst at least three of the major opposition parties, uh, a new era, justice first and uh, democratic action. And uh, uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who is the founder of Guaido's uh, uh, party, Popular Will, has confirmed that uh, these discussions are, in fact, uh, uh, taking place. And reportedly, Popular Will is resisting these talks. And so I feel like there's been a lot of uh, tension and contradictions uh, within the Venezuela opposition for some time, really in general, but certainly around uh, the issue of Juan Guaido himself. And so, Ricardo, uh, could you explain uh, just what is happening here and why is it that uh, this wing of the opposition uh, seems like they have soured on Guaido? 
Yeah, I mean, these four parties that you mentioned, they are the, the four largest opposition parties and they won, they, they went in a coalition and won the National Assembly elections in, in 2015. But even though they are uh, anti-government, anti-Chavista in deep in their blood, they also hate each other. And so because they couldn't agree on someone to be in charge of the National Assembly, they, they took turns. And when it got to 2019, it was popular will's turn and the uh, the most senior figure that was left that wasn't either fleeing charges or in jail was Guaido. And so it was his turn, and that's how he became uh, interim president, quote-unquote, this, this post that uh, was handily created for the occasion. But popular will is the smallest of the four, so that has always generated a bit of resentment amongst the other parties that it was this kind of junior figure in the opposition who got to enjoy all this protagonism and... I mean, these things that uh, a pro-American opposition will enjoy, you know, going to the White House, going to to Congress and, and so on. But essentially, uh, Guaido proclaimed himself in January 2019, and depending on how optimistic you are, at least uh, in the middle of 2019, it was clear that it, he wasn't going, going anywhere. He wasn't going to overthrow the government. And so little by little, uh, this amidst the, the opposition forces, we saw a rise of, of voices uh, questioning this path. So, that first, that there were internal ruptures inside all these, these three parties that we mentioned, uh, Justice First, Democratic Action, and the New Era. So, some people left and formed parallel parties. But then, even those uh, that who, who remain, who are the majority and who remain backed by the United States, have uh, questioned uh, why those con continuation have questioned this parallel government. Uh, for example, during the pandemic, there was a leader who said, you know, if you are the opposition, you can demand things from the government. If you are a self-proclaimed government, people expect you to do things, and Guaido doesn't do anything. And in fact, last year, about a year ago, there were already rumblings that these three opposition parties wanted to get rid of Guaido. In the end, they settled for a kind of compromise. They stripped him of some of his bureaucracy, and, and the show continued for a year. But now it's more serious because they actually went to Washington, D.C., because they know that uh, whatever decision is made is going to be made in Washington. So they are lobbying U.S. officials to end this, this experiment. So they, they know they know who called the shots. Uh, I, I don't know if it's going to be successful. We can, we can discuss why. Yeah, I was hoping you would get into that, about to whether or not you think uh, they'll have any success in this venture. Yeah, I mean, there are a few things in play. The reason why they want to get rid of Guaido is because Guaido has become an embarrassment. And there are elections on the horizon. They should be in 2024, although there are some rumblings that they're going to be moved forward to 2023. We don't know if that's some kind of agreement in this uh, backdoor negotiation, uh, backroom negotiations with the United States. But anyway, there are elections on the horizon, and Guaido is a huge distraction. Uh, the opposition needs to <laughs> configure itself as an opposition that is going to challenge the government, and having something that's pretending to be a, a government in, in place does not help, that on, on one hand. On the other, this embarrassment is also an embarrassment for the United States, because the United States propped up this figure, have had him uh, name ambassadors all over the world, and still to this day, even though they are negotiating with Maduro, continue to reiterate that they support Guaido and they recognize him. So they need to find a kind of honorable, respectable way out so it, it doesn't really blow up in their faces and, and generate a lot of backlash from these hardline sectors. And the final one, which is perhaps less 
discussed in, in the corporate media has to do with Venezuela's assets, and in particular, Citgo, uh, who is, uh, which is in the U.S. So essentially, after Guaido proclaimed himself, the, the United States seized all Venezuelan assets and put them in opposition under opposition control. And the biggest of them is Citgo, this uh, oil subsidiary that has three very large refineries, a big network of gas stations. It's worth some $8 billion. And it's being targeted by creditors, essentially because of sanctions and these uh, international arbitration tribunals that always rule in favor of corporations. There are some international arbitration awards. And these corporations have their eyes on Citgo. So right now there's a court order sales procedure that will auction shares in order in order to satisfy these claims, and Citgo is in a already in a, in a kind of a weird legal position because it answers to this uh, interim government, which in turn answers the assembly whose term has already expired. So if there's a significant change to that structure, that could mean more uh, turmoil for for Citgo. And if we go back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, that essentially from mid-2019, it was clear that Guaido wasn't going anywhere, then we have to wonder why has he gone on for so long? And one of the speculations, which I think there are several reasons to, to believe it, is that he's now just ensuring that these very juicy assets end up in the right, in the right hands, in the right corporate hands. And in this case, we're talking about ConocoPhillips, which has a huge arbitration award to collect. And so... I believe that Guaido needs to stay in place to ensure that uh, this breakup of Citgo and this uh, satisfying of, of claims from creditors goes ahead. But for that, he, he, the interim presidency needs to continue. Otherwise, it will just be uh, a, lot of, a lot of confusion. Yeah. And Ricardo, how does this track with um, what also appears to be a decrease in international support for Juan Guaido. I know recently on Venezuela Analysis, you all were reporting on how uh, the Organization of American States uh, uh, actually voted to uh, oust representation from uh, Guaido's, uh, well, what some people might call his cabinet, what I will call his uh, entourage. But I, I think that uh, that says quite a, a bit, as the OAS is known. I mean, one of the characteristics of it, I would argue, is that it um, uh, has a strong tendency to go along with the whims of uh, the U.S. and the West. And so uh, the expulsion of these Guaido representatives, uh, to me, seems like an indication that uh, some of his support internationally seems to be tapering off as well. Yeah, and that goes to show you the, the internal discussions that are going on in D.C. I mean, from the very start, there was a sector that was against this adventure, and it was the, the Trump White House with, with Bolton and later Abrams who, who decided that somehow this was going to work. They were going to uh, proclaim this puppet and they were going to threaten the Venezuelan military and that was going to, to result in a coup, of course. It was uh, a bit far-fetched. But it, it really goes to show that uh, an organization that is known by some as the United States Ministry of Colonies, even there, uh, even this this forum is, is no longer a safe haven for, for Guaido. So as you were saying, uh, there was recently a, an attempt to evict his quote-unquote ambassador from the OAS. So if, if we go back a few years, Venezuela exited the OAS because it, it had just become a mechanism for meddling in internal affairs. And then after the Guaido experiment began, they named an ambassador. But uh, even for countries that are pro-US uh, or even ambivalent, it was a bit uh, embarrassing to just have this uh, weird representative there. So now that there's a majority of leftist governments, even though they, they don't necessarily 
classify as, as radical, but you have these leftist governments in, in, in Peru, in, in Bolivia, in Colombia, even in Chile, uh, they, they just think the farce has gone too far and they want to get rid of Guaido. And, and same, same thing goes with uh, the international recognition. In, in the beginning, there were some 50 to 60 countries. And now it's, uh, I mean, for generous, we'll be around a dozen. So Guaido is really running, running out of room. And it's a bit, uh, he's a bit, uh, the, the Biden administration is a bit out of step with it because uh, he has already lost so much credibility. And yet uh, the Biden administration hasn't found a way to get rid of him. And that was going to be my next question. And although, you know, it, it can be hard to sort of know uh, uh, the the opinions or discussions happening at that uh, level of government when it's not made public. But I did want to ask about, you know, your estimation of Washington's attitude towards Juan Guaido um, at this uh, point. I mean, you, you, you reported in your piece here for Venezuela analysis that uh, Brian Nichols, uh, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, uh, 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 you know, called for a quote unquote negotiated settlement uh, for this issue in Venezuela. And so, I mean, uh, where do you think uh, Washington sits in all this? I mean, you mentioned that they don't seem to really know what, what to do with him or how to get rid of him. I mean, increasingly, I mean, particularly with uh, the oil situation here in the U.S. vis a vis OPEC and uh, the U.S. government now uh, uh, coming to uh, the Venezuelan government potentially for support in uh, the oil area. But, you know, uh, uh, how do you sort of think that uh, uh, the U.S. regime is considering uh, all these issues with Guaido at this point? Yeah, Guaido has become a bit of a nuisance. There was a, a piece in Argus Media that said that Guaido was, quote unquote, torpedoing negotiations on, on sanctions relief with Venezuela. What you're saying is, is totally true. Uh, Guaido is expanded line. People like him are a dime a dozen. And the, the U.S. is focused right now beyond these uh, nonsensical claims about uh, freedom and, and democracy. I mean, they are about interests, and in particular, the, the energy market and the oil market. So they want Venezuela to, to resume supplying oil to, the, to global markets in, in, in hopes that that will bring down the prices and then favor the U.S. in its other uh, larger confrontation right now with Russia. So. In the end, once there's a deal that's uh, favorable to both parts, uh, to, to Maduro and, and to Washington, they will find a way to get rid of Guaido. They just need to find a PR way of selling it. So my belief is that they're going to condition sanctions relief sufficiently in, the, in a way that it's going to benefit uh, U.S. corporations like uh, Chevron, that has been the, the most active in, in lobbying. There was also talk a couple of days ago there was a piece on Reuters that there will be an agreement to supply some three billion in funds to the United Nations, and I found this uh, quite outrageous because these are three billions, three billion uh, of worth of Venezuelan funds. So these these are funds that the U.S. seized, and it's now giving back to Venezuela under condition. So using that as as blackmail. So I think that's more or less where where things will go, but. It, at the same time, there is a political scenario. There, there is these elections, and so as things stand right, uh, things stand right now. Uh, it's going to be an uphill battle for the opposition to come together and present uh, a serious challenge to to Maduro. So then it 
becomes a point of whether the U.S. can find a way. I mean, after all this work, uh, demonizing him, and at some point they were even calling him the, f the former, Madu former Maduro regime and so on, whether they can find a way to recognize this election and move forward, or if they'll just uh, rinse and repeat with some minor changes to the sanctions policy. Yeah, yeah, that definitely uh, uh, seems to be the case. And, you know, just just looking back on all this, Ricardo, I mean, it's been a long uh, three years uh, uh, since, you know, we were sort of introduced to this whole issue of a Wang Guaido in terms of uh, an, an honest uh, uh, sort of regime change effort by the U.S. in Venezuela. And despite all of these uh, uh, attempts, I mean, it uh, I mean, he obviously just didn't deliver on his promise to uh, violently oust the Maduro government. I mean, it seems that uh, uh, the Bolivarian government in Venezuela simply just has too strong of support at a number of levels to to really uh, allow that to happen. And I, I, it makes me actually want to swing back to what you were mentioning a little earlier about the Venezuelan assets. And I mean, I feel like the whole issue around like, you know, uh, uh, money embezzlement and, and, and things like that that have gone on in the Guaido camp. I mean, there's a whole lot there just on that issue. But uh, uh, I'm just curious. I mean, do we know at this point whether Guaido will be able to be uh, the beneficiary of these uh, ill-gotten resources that, you know, rightfully belong to uh, uh, the Venezuelan people? But it seems that a part and parcel of supporting this quote-unquote interim government is uh, uh, sort of letting them benefit from uh, some of these different things, these, uh, uh, you know, assets that are being held hostage and things like that. And so uh, do we have any indication about whether um, Guaido will, will still have access to this uh, as his support continues to decrease. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, the, the word you mentioned a while ago, entourage, is, is, is very apropos because the interim government has just been an opportunity to have all these uh, politically inc incompetent people land these high-profile gigs and, and be very well paid for it. And they've certainly enjoyed it so far. I mean, there are rumors that Guaido has been buying property, Guaido or his relatives have been buying property in Spain. So, you know, whatever happens, he will have gotten a small fortune out of this. And I'm sure he's going to be rewarded. For example, if Sipco ends up broken and seized by Conoco Phillips, I wouldn't be surprised if Guaido ends up as a, you know, a non-executive board member at Conoco Phillips or if Conoco Phillips just creates some pointless democracy NGO for him. So he's going to land on his feet if he's not arrested, which is, of course, what, what, what should happen. But when, when, when I, was, I was thinking about this interview, uh, it, it has indeed been a long three years, almost four years. And I was trying to think, I mean, it's been how long has it been since we had a, a respectable opposition here in, in Venezuela? I mean, certainly these last four years have not been respectable. The, the previous five were ridden with these violent efforts to overthrow the government. So we have to go back almost 10 years. And in fact, the, the candidate who lost against Chavez in 2012 might be the most respectable candidate uh, running now in, in, in 2022 uh, or in 2024 rather. So it will be more than a lost decade for the Venezuelan opposition. But in the meantime, they have indeed made, made a lot of money. Uh, and just last night, there was a report uh, that these opposition parties, even the ones that want to get rid of Guaido, are getting some 100 to $200,000 a month from of public funds. And this, these are precisely the accounts that uh, the, the US seized, and now they are being used to fund this kind of parallel government and allow all these people who would never had the political competence to take power 
to enjoy some very very sunny retirements. So, so we'll have to see what happens to Guaido if he lands on his feet, or if he's, uh, as we believe he should, if he's arrested here in Venezuela once this whole charade ends. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ricardo, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the status of uh, the emission pledges from different countries and how it's simply not enough to address climate change. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Anthony Rogers Wright, Director of Environmental Justice with New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me as always. Happy Friday. Or Thursday. Happy Thursday. Absolutely. Well, I, I wish it was Friday as well, Anthony. And, uh, you know, um, the, the United Nations um, has been pointing out that uh, uh, currently uh, the pledges from different countries to cut their greenhouse gas emissions, the way that they're at right now, will lead to a global heating of 2.5 degrees Celsius. And this is a level that would basically uh, ensure a catastrophic climate breakdown here on on uh, planet Earth. And this is happening um, despite different countries strengthening their commitments to this uh, uh, at the COP26 uh, UN Climate Summit that happened last November in Glasgow. Now, according to Simon Steele, who's the executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, quote, this does not go far enough, fast enough. This is nowhere near the scale of reductions required to put us on track to 1.5 degrees Celsius. National governments must set new goals now and implement them in the next eight years. And, you know, Anthony, this is just, just something that seems far too common when it comes to these issues. I mean, these governments come to these big international meetings and talk about how concerned they are with climate change and make these pledges, but the pledges somehow never seem to actually be enough to uh, uh, have things reach the levels where they need to be, according to the experts. And, and I can't help but feel that that's not an accident. Uh, or an oversight, but I'm just wondering how you're seeing it as, you know, the, the climate crisis on Earth here continues to deepen. Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head in so many ways just in your introduction. So, so first and foremost, you said pledges, which is absolutely correct. And that's a problem in itself, brother, because they're not directives, right? They're not ordinances. There are pledges, and, and pledges can be broken, right? There, there is nothing that would lead to any comeuppance if a nation like the United States of America, who, of course, is responsible for the most emissions in the world per capita, doesn't meet um, uh, the necessary targets. And then I think you also hit the nail on the head. As you, uh, uh, Sister Jackie, know, I am going to the uh, COP conference in Egypt in my capacity as uh, a NOPI director and as well as my capacity as a member of the Black Alliance for Peace. But we're acting like this is like a high school this is literally the, the asteroid that is coming right for us. And like you said, instead of really getting serious about it, 
we're going to yet another conference where we're going to ignore um, nations of the global south, including um, Republic Energy on the United States of America, and, and not listen to them and leave with um, clear two points. Right. You know, it's not just this catastrophic. I mean, that's the end. Systems would not be able to operate in a way that that's requisite to sustain life. And what's um, equally important is the fact that at the rate that we're going right now, we are going to breach the 1.5 degree centigrade threshold, which is what 97, 98 percent of scientists have told us. If we warm that much, things are going to be um, um, irreversible, potentially, and we're going to be um, in, in real trouble. So, um you know, th- this report is basically even told us, unfortunately, it almost waved the white flag and saying that we have to reduce emissions by 43 percent by the end of this decade, which is something that the report concluded does not seem likely or possible. Yeah. And I have to ask, Anthony, why is it that these countries who must be uh, well aware of uh, the implications of their inactions and their half measures? I mean, why, basically, is what I'm wondering. And, you know, I, obviously it can be difficult to try to get into the minds of uh, these people that run these governments. But, I mean, what is it, you think, that is keeping them from making the steps that are necessary to uh, try to prevent a climate breakdown that would literally affect uh, everybody on this planet? Yeah, I mean, it's a simple answer for two complex problems, right? Capitalism and militarism. I mean, that, that, that's it in a, in, a, in a nutshell. We have... Um, nation states, which are either controlled uh, uh, solely by people who do not want to let go of the fossil fuel economy. And then we have so-called democratic nations like the United States of America, who have um, lawmakers in the pockets of the people, the fossil fuel cartels, Shell, Exxon, etc., who who don't want to let go of a fossilized economy. And so, I mean, the, 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 the world economy is really tied into something that is destroying us, not to mention the $20 billion in perverse subsidies that the United States government gives. And I believe um, um, it's, it's close to um, $500 billion global perverse subsidies to keep this industry alive. You know, we, we, the, the people who simply do not want to cut the cord because it is against their bottom line as capital and it's against their uh, bottom line as interventionist and, 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 and resources, quite frankly, who really have embraced a white supremacy framework when it comes to global interdependence in that people of the so-called global south, their lives are just not valued as much as the people who are doing the emitting and whose pensions, whose um, 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 home loans, um, you know, so many, many things are tied up in this fossil, uh, fossilized economy. And until we let that go, we are essentially um, also saying that we're not going to let go of the notion that our planet is in real trouble and all of these inhabitants are in trouble. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that that's probably what's most, uh, frankly, infuriating about this whole thing is that our lives, the lives of uh, humanity uh, itself, <laughs> you know what I mean? People across the globe and uh, uh, other life forms literally are being put at risk uh, uh, on an existential level because of the machinations of profit making. And this, I think, really highlights the fundamental inhumanity of capitalism itself, because the point of this 
system is not simply to generate profit, but to maximize profit at all costs, including uh, a, a human cost. You know what I mean? And so you mentioned a while ago, uh, uh, considering how uh, the role of white supremacy and racism in this whole issue, Anthony, in terms of uh, the global south. I mean, what do you see as the role of uh, uh, the global south in this issue? And I know that's a broad question, but we're talking about countries that by and large contribute very little to climate change, but experience some of the worst uh, consequences of it, you know, not to mention and, you know, connected to that, this issue of climate reparations that you hear people talk about, uh, not to mention that a lot of these countries have a lot of their own sort of um, uh, ideas and tactics and strategies for dealing with it, too, that we uh, seem to uh, be cut off from, not not cut off by them, but cut off from the U.S. and the West sort of refusal to diverge even one inch away from uh, anything that may threaten uh, the bottom line. You know what I mean? And so how do you see the role of uh, the global south in tackling uh, uh, the issue of climate catastrophe? Well, you know, one, one thing that um, we, we also have to mention, you know, you, you gave a, a very um, excellent and um, a, a list of what capitalism is made up of and what its motivations are. The other thing about capitalism is that it doesn't believe in accountability. Right. It, it believes in profit, accountability be damned in spite of accountability. And so when you have um, nations like the United States and, and many nations in the, in the um, uh, um, European Union who um, over time, right, um, since we've been measuring emissions, are the most responsible for these emissions. You add that on to the massive amount of colonization that took place centuries ago and still takes place today. That, that is a lot of accountability to the point where I almost... Um, have a little bit of empathy for them, but no sympathy, certainly. And so to, to admit that, right, to admit these faults, which, and, and when I say admit them, I mean admit them with, with, with integrity, right, with conviction, would mean to also say we are responsible for trillions and trillions of dollars to address this issue, as well as recompense for, um, as, as you mentioned it, um, um, many of the things that, that Western nations have done to the nations that are least responsible for this climate crisis. Now, what can uh, uh, we learn from them? Simply so, so much. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, Nicaragua um, is utilizing more renewable energies per capita than the United States of America. Costa Rica is almost 100 um, percent um, renewable, and it probably helps that Costa Rica does not have a military because, as we know, the United States military is the biggest emitter in the entire world. Um, and then we have the uh, uh, Republic of Colombia, where, you know, a, a, a recently elected uh, a leftist um, um, administration in, during the inauguration, uh, the, the now president, uh, Gustavo Petra, Petra, excuse me, um, dedicated at least 20 minutes of his inaugural speech to the issue of, of climate change, right? So in, in other words, really saying this is a major issue, even though we didn't cause it, this is a major issue that, that we have to address collectively. Um, you know, furthermore, um, we can learn from the social programs because this is not just about emissions. This is also about the people who are directly and in some cases indirectly impacted by the emissions and the tainted water, you can have healthcare systems in place that don't bankrupt people, but actually, you know, make them healthy. Um, and that's going to be very, very helpful because as we know, as these emissions continue, healthcare costs are also going to rise. And then we can also make an economy that's rooted in a feminist lens, which we're seeing a lot of, especially with the um, ascension of the great Francia Marquez, now the vice president of, of Colombia, you know, um, that, that feminist lens to a just transition off of fossil fuels. And 
and make that tangible. We're seeing that in so many ways in, in the so-called global south in a way that is unfortunately and quite frankly anathema to the uh, global west and the global north. Yeah. And, you know, I want to stay for a moment on this issue that you raise of the social programs. I think that's so important and an aspect of the climate question that uh, doesn't really get tackled enough precisely because the conversation uh, is almost always had within the context of uh, uh, the way capitalism grapples with this sort of presupposing its legitimacy. Right. But there does, I think, have to be a sort of deeper um, systemic approach to uh, a number of social issues through these kinds of programs that can only benefit the uh, 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 climate question, which I think, again, uh, indicts the capitalist system itself and its role in uh, uh, the climate issue. You know what I mean? And so how do you see these kinds of social programs uh, playing a role in uh, uh, the struggle for climate justice? Because it doesn't just affect sort of the planet in and of itself. It also uh, uh, sort of exacerbates the already uh, systemic issues facing poor working and oppress people across this earth? No, no, absolutely. This is this is a great question, brother. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, um, our folk, black, brown, indigenous, uh, uh, poor white, poor Asian folk, who are all our folk, right? You know, they have the types of jobs that are, we, we like to say, the, the greenest jobs because they result in the least amount of emissions. You're talking about care workers. You're talking about teachers. You know, um, you're, you're, you're talking about laborers, you know, as well. People who tend to commute to work rather than, than, than driving cars. Maybe they because they can't afford cars, um, and and that's you know not to be reductive of, of people who don't have access to great transportation in, in rural communities, but these these occupations are still the lowest um, uh, responsible for the uh, lowest amount of emissions, right? And so, but they're also the ones who are receiving the least amount of care from their respective governments. And so, um, um, social programs that that really um, one assist those people more. Um, it's going to also increase that workforce when people see that okay, you know, these are great jobs. By the way, they're 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 um, necessary jobs, right? Talking about people taking care of our greatest resources, including our elders and our and our children. You know, if, if more people see that, that's going to be more attractive to them. Um, so. And, that, and that's just like, you know, one um, um, small example. And also, obviously, when you have a healthier workforce because they're not worried about, you know, um, their, their electric bills or they're not worried about their health care costs, okay, that's going to be a more productive workforce in our eventual um, um, green economy. The other thing that um, we're, you know, just getting back to your question about what we can learn from the Global South is the need for the decentralization of systems, because right now, um, um, one of one of speaking of the green economy, one of our sectors which should be the least emitting, almost zero emissions, right, is agriculture, um, and that's because it's an industrialized form of capitalized agriculture that is not decentralized, right? That is globalized, and that, you know, globalized, fossilized, you know, all the pesticides and things like that. Social programs that help small family farmers and the creation of local systems, I believe, would reduce more than half a sector of the economy that is currently responsible for about 15% of, of aggregate emissions. You do that globally and you can reduce um, emissions even more because it reduces the need for deforestation, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, the last thing I want to say on this question is that you brought up the issue of climate justice, climate environmental justice. That's, you know, what, what I do um, um, to compensate myself. And, and and that's also something that has been missing from these global climate talks. It's getting a bit better in the United States, but it's not 
not being exercised in a way where we really understand and 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 make sure that our economies, that our policies, right, uh, that that our education systems, etc., like so many of our systems are rooted in principles of environmental justice, principles of climate justice, principles of energy democracy, principles of food sovereignty, and then as I mentioned before, principles of what some refer to as like a feminist green new deal. So um, um, these these um, these types of um, uh, uh, pillars and and these principles are not just talking about the physical environment. They're also talking about the social infrastructure that needs to be in place such that we can put less stress on our physical environment and be less in competition with each other and with our environment and more in comp- uh, cooperation with each other in our environments. Absolutely. And, and lastly, I also wanted to hit on the issue of imperialism, because as you noted a couple of times in our conversation correctly, uh, the U.S. military machine with its 800 some odd uh, bases and installations being of uh, the world's greatest emitter. And we're told here in the U.S. that it's necessary to uh, have this uh, a global military presence. Supposedly, this is keeping us safe. But in reality, what it's protecting is the profits of uh, the warmongers and uh, the interest and in property of the the ruling class. And so this is why we understand that war is uh, is big business. And so, I mean, it, it shows, uh, I think, uh, in a strong way, Anthony, about how any real climate change effort fundamentally has to be an anti-imperialist effort as well because of the huge role that imperialism plays in poisoning this planet and all of us. No, no, absolutely. So, like, you know, to that first anecdote, to your point about, you know, what uh, this massive mili- global military presence is actually doing. You know, my younger uh, mid-20s, um, I had the opportunity to travel to Iraq three times as a member of the USO band. I was playing bass, and, and um, we, we were supporting and entertaining the troops. You know, the, the, the first time that I was there was right when uh, the, the, you know, uh, unnecessary, unwarranted war against Iraq um, commenced. And, you know, there was a lot of fervor. The troops uh, uh, were indoctrinated. They were beguiled. They believed that they were there for a purpose. Brother, by the third time and last time that I went to Iraq, you could just see how despondent uh, the faces looked in a lot of these uh, soldiers because they realized whereas they were getting paid forty to $50,000 a year to literally put their lives on the line for a war they had stopped understanding the, the necessity for, they also understood that they were guarding Halliburton trucks transporting oil and those workers getting paid $40,000 a month. So th- that's, that's what we know that a lot of these uh, bases are doing. This is about, you know, uh, protection and, and, and pillage of what's seen as necessary resources. I mean, now that we're, you know, getting into, unfortunately, this idea of switching big oil with big renewable, we're probably going to see a bigger presence of um, forces like AFRICOM because a lot of the minerals that we need, you know, for um, a, 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 a capitalized renewable energy system comes from countries like um, um, DRC. And, and East Sierra Leone and throughout the entire continent, these minerals are there in addition to um, the indigenous nations, who I also consider foreign nations um, whose lands are occupied in the United States of America, right? So, I, I mean, we've also seen in, in a microcosm the um, Equetal um, in Puerto Rico, um, what, what happens when there's a massive military and long-term military presence. Vieques Island, um, highest you know, uh, cancer rates in, in Puerto Rico due to all the chemical exposure from um, military operations by the Navy and, and, and the Marines, and, and unexploded bombs, um, and tainting of water, etc. And then, of course, the, the everyday emissions that goes with um, keeping a base open. Um, 
we we cannot talk about the uh, addressing the climate crisis if we do not talk about inflated budgets for for a a, a hyper uh, military force around the world that that is just disingenuous and 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 we're not having the full conversation so i believe um there has only been one piece of legislation and one platform and that was uh, uh by senator elizabeth warren when she was running for president and then um again she uh, um, it, um tried to release a bill that would actually address greening the military now, I, I'm not here to talk about the substance of the bill, but I'm saying that, like, that, that I'm just saying that to point out that the conversation is not a prevalent one, even within, um, you know, the, the, the uh, climate change in Tallahansee, you know, you do not see a reduction in militarism in the lexicon. And, and that's a really, really big problem, right? Because um, if we are really about holding polluters accountable, which is what we say a lot, make polluters pay, which is what we say a lot, right? And we're not going to talk about the biggest emitter in the world, you know, what, what does that really say about how seriously we're addressing this climate crisis, which goes back the reason why you had me on the show in the first place, that UN report, which is what it's saying in a nutshell, we are not being serious about this crisis. And as a result, many more people are going to be displaced. Uh, many more people's lives are going to be altered. And, and unfortunately, many of, of people's lives are going to be lost. And the vast majority of those lives are going to be the lives that I consider myself accountable to, to black, brown, indigenous, and uh, uh, poor white and Asian folk uh, uh, globally. So um, that, that's it. You just hit it full circle. This is why you're such a great Great um, um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're very kind, brother. And we thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, October 27th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call, Hibbert, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And as always, we are streaming live from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Kamal Franklin an organizer with Community Movement Builders in Atlanta and co-founder of Black Power Media. Kamal, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, as always. 
Well, the pleasure is all ours, Kamau, and it's being reported that the U.S. government is feeling pretty confident that they will be able to secure either a U.N. Security Council resolution uh, in terms of this uh, uh, so-called humanitarian intervention or multinational task force uh, heading into Haiti and believes that there will be a, a conclusion to this in some form or fashion. At least in early November, which is uh, only a few days away. And uh, I think what really gets me uh, about this, I mean, besides the obvious, I was reading in the Miami Herald, uh, which said, quote, as U.S. officials hold out hope for Security Council passage, they are also planning contingencies for a multilateral force that would enter Haiti without formal U.N. authorization. Now, my understanding is that uh, some of the issues uh, with this uh, moving forward is, I mean, what appears to be uh, an inability to find uh, a country willing to uh, uh, lead uh, this uh, multilateral force and uh, the prospect of a possible uh, criticism or condemnation or blocking of uh, such a thing from uh, Security Council members like China or Russia. But despite all of this, Washington's confidence uh, still seems to be intact, which does not bode well at all for the people of Haiti who have been struggling mightily uh, in uh, calling for uh, the resignation of uh, a U.S. backed uh, puppet leader, Dr. Ari L. Henri, in the same way that uh, Jovenel Moise was uh, really only given legitimacy by the U.S. Uh, uh, government. Uh, of course, before his assassination. And so, I mean, the people in Haiti have been in the streets for uh, months, uh, frankly, for years uh, uh, in a recent memory, uh, uh, centered uh, chiefly around the role that imperialism has and continues to play in their country. And uh, the, the U.S. government, the West and the corporate press continue to paint these um, uh, 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 protests or resistance to Ariel Henry as being being part of gang activity when in reality, you know, the imperialist and the wealthy ruling families of Haiti are uh, the real gangs. But, you know, I think I've said quite enough uh, about this, uh, uh, Kamal, but I'm generally curious what you think about just the uh, uh, tenacity. I mean, the, the U.S. and the West just seems bound, held and determined to invade Haiti uh, uh, once again, which, as we know from history, can only mean uh, a bloodshed and suffering for the people of that country. No, you're exactly right. I, I think, for me, this is a moment to, to clearly show that Western imperialism, even in what's developing to be a multipolar world, still knows, knows no bounds. Like, similarly, I was extremely taken aback last week um, at, a, at the United Nations meeting where the U.S. ambassador basically outlined um, the attempt to bring in a force that was not authorized by the United Nations. And as we already know, one that is authorized by the United Nations still works at the behest and the interest of Western capitalism and Western imperialism, particularly American imperialism. You know, the, the quick history of, of the last time there was a, a intervening UN force uh, led to bloodshed, uh, cholera outbreaks, um, and that was done even by so-called left governments, which wanted to get the, let's say, the notoriety um, by being on the world stage and leading a UN intervention. Um, and I think we've hit a critical stage here because, as you stated, the people of Haiti 
are have been out in the streets for literally years now, and the momentum seems to only be growing. Which each outrage, um, uh, lifting of of, uh, of gas subsidies, um, uh, the lack thereof of of any democratic uh, vote, um, and the installation of these U.S. puppet regimes, um, and uh, the stealing of resources from Haiti uh, in terms of what was given to them uh, via uh, Venezuela a few years ago, has continually outraged the masses of people in Haiti to say no more. And I think the reaction to the political and economic elites of Haiti is to call their puppet master, which has been the U.S. government, and to come, try to get them to come in and demand some type of protection for them because the masses of people are starting to step up um, and to go after even uh, some private property. And so I think that is what's really alarming them. I think lastly, as you noted earlier, so of course there is gang activity, but the question becomes in whose interest has those gangs served? And for the most part, those interests, uh, those gangs were armed by, uh, again, political elites and economic elites in Haiti, um, and those gangs served a certain function. And now that those gangs are, some of them are independent actors, um, that some of these political elites feel like they can no longer control, they are also using that as an excuse to call for Western-backed intervention, which again, like you said, will lead to nothing but bloodshed for Haitians. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, uh, what you raise about the the, the theft of the funds from the Petro Caribe fund from uh, uh, Venezuela, I think a real example of a uh, solidarity between uh, nations in uh, the global South and how that was just stolen, just straight up taken from the people of Haiti by uh, a then leader, uh, Jovenel Moise, who you know later would go on to become a de facto uh, a dictator of that country. Again, only uh, being able to remain in power because of his support by the U.S. and the West. And that I think think is just one example of what a series of different uh, colonial and imperial powers have uh, uh, exacted and frankly forced upon the people of Haiti for years. It's just leader after leader after leader that serves the interest of these powers while and, and thereby doing so, um, giving themselves the ability to just rob their own people blind, all while uh, the U.S. and the West look the other way because what they want to get achieved is being achieved. And so this is why throughout centuries, frankly, we've seen uh, uh, countless examples of democracy not being able to uh, take root in Haiti, uh, of that whole process being actively scuttled through uh, interference and the machinations of uh, U.S. imperialism and other powers as well, you know, not to let uh, Britain, France, uh, Canada and, and others off the hook uh, for what's been happening there for some years. And so it, it, it's something that always comes up when people discuss Gus Haiti and bring up the fact that, you know, it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere that deals with all this uh, uh, political, social and economic stability. But it's never explained why we're all just left to believe that somehow the Haitians can't govern themselves and that, you know, the interference of the U.S. and the West or these U.N. so-called peacekeeping missions and things uh, uh, like that. But it, but it's never sort of explained about how there's been a very intentional effort to ensure 
that stability cannot come uh, uh, to Haiti because that instability just leaves the country vulnerable for that exploitation that um, we've been discussing. And so what we're seeing in Haiti is the consequence of centuries of history. But this is a, a, a important context that isn't known broadly in the United States, nor is it properly explained by uh, this government and its corporate press that that, you know, uh, uh, sort of follows along with it in this syncophantic way. And that's not uh, a coincidence, right? Because the consciousness of people in this country and them just sort of believing these long held uh, racist tropes about Haiti and uh, countries in the Caribbean and the global South and in Africa and in places like this, you know, it's basically a matter of manufacturing consent for yet another uh, imperialist invasion of this country, Kamal. But it can be hard to even see that with all the thick layers of deflection, mischaracterization, half-truths and outright lies coming from the very same powers that, that are bleeding this country dry. No, as you said, this is a historical example of what the United States does and does continuously. And I think with the additions of this being the first uh, uh, and, and potentially the only successful uh, revolution of enslaved Africans outside of the, uh, well, yeah, outside, outside of the, the um, uh, um, of the continent of the United States. Uh, well, not even outside the continent, but the first successful enslaved revolution by Africans, uh, which overthrew Western imperialism at the time, the French. And since that time, they've been punished for those deeds and those actions. And to just give a quick Chomsky reference again, uh, 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 akin to the manufacturing consent reference, uh, it's the threat of the good example. Haiti is a small country. It is not a well-resourced country, but it has enough or has in the past had enough arable land to control and or to make sure that it, it would have enough food stocks um, and could take care of its own people. And the idea that a poor African-based nation in the Western Hemisphere could run its own affairs, um, could take care of itself, is something that the West looks, particularly the United States again, looks to make sure it can never happen. And as we had with the Aristide government, the closest we've had to a people's government, a fully uh, democratic election in which Aristide was uh, uh, elected, um, the choice that the West made, that the United States made, was to twice overthrow Aristide to only bring them back under certain conditions uh, that brought in neoliberal um, economic uh, gestures of making sure that rice was purchased in the United States, uh, making sure that other economic engines were shut down or alternatives were shut down. And this is what the common goal is, is that when the people get upset in Haiti and they make leftward turns about the sharing of their own resources, the use of their resources for their own goods and their own needs, the United States, through again, it's Western um, uh, supported elite political and economic elite in Haiti decide that now is the time to call for another intervention to clamp down on, on what people says, say that their needs are, what their desires are. And I think that's exactly where we're going. In the United States has clearly expressed whether, again, there is a U.N. resolution or not, that it will invade Haiti with some forces to control the people from kicking out the current government, from stopping other elites from taking control. This is the only thing that the United States cares about in this situation, and this is what they're going after. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised a particular point that I think has also gotten lost in that the fact that 
What the uh, Haitian people are doing, and their calls for Henri to resign as part and parcel of this, is they're asserting the very sovereignty that has been under attack for centuries. And they're making the case that they should be able to decide who their uh, country deals with in certain ways and how they want to dictate that. They don't want that dictated by these outside forces that have been in control for so long with the assistance of these um, uh, uh, very sympathetic, let's say, uh, wealthy ruling families of uh, uh, the country. And the reason why that strikes me is because, you know, U.S. imperialism never hesitates to uh, uplift the voices and perspectives of uh, the diaspora or the people of different countries that they seek to have control over. If what they're saying is, uh, 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 you know, if it falls in line with the whims of U.S. imperialism. So when we hear things like listen to Venezuelan voices or listen to Syrian voices or listen to Iranian voices or whatever the country is, interestingly, those voices always fall in line with the whims of imperialism. But here we have countless people in the streets of Haiti literally saying we don't want another invasion. We don't want another invention. Oh, by the way, we also don't want this guy leading us who we didn't pick and didn't vote for, but that goes ignored because it doesn't square with uh, the whims of imperialism. And so, you know, as ever, the, the, the reality of the actual desires of the people on the ground in these countries, the people that the U.S. and the West claim to care so much about obviously does not matter because what they actually want is contradictory to the desires of imperialism and therefore have no value. And so everything boils down to what, you know, Dr. Ariel Henry says and also, you know, the other uh, uh, groups uh, that uh, sort of go along with this uh, CARICOM and others. It all sort of gets boiled down to what him and the other so-called leadership of Haiti are doing and therefore the actual voices of the Haitian people get uh, uh, basically ignored. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, this is basically a propaganda game. And like you said, people in the United States don't know, don't understand, don't get it that their tax dollars are being used to rule over people who don't want to be ruled over, people who want an independent and sovereign government who, in all likelihood, would turn to places like Venezuela and Cuba for support and help and ideas around alternative ways to govern and outside of a capitalist orbit. It is the fact that they know that, that the Haitian people who have seen the extremes of capitalism and capitalist development no longer longer want that type of development centered in their country, or if they ever wanted it centered in their country, um, that they are sick and tired of it, that they get the fact that they don't get to make decisions and that these the decisions made uh, for them are done so by, again, Western-backed uh, elites who are capitalists in nature and or look to get close to these corporations and other entities that the West prescribes for them. And if people are saying, we don't want that, we don't, we no longer, we, again, we no longer and or at or never wanted that in our country. And it's all about the propaganda game that keeps Americans themselves ignorant, easily brought off, we should say, in some circumstances, but ignorant of what's really happening in Haiti, because you're right. It's only the elite voices that you're hearing right now on the radio or on the TV or in newspapers when this discussion is actually happening. Um, you're hearing the elite viewpoint um, and or people who are picked out of the crowd to talk about dangerous conditions conditions in Haiti, um, but you're not getting the hundreds of thousands. Literally, you have 5, 10, 15 percent of the total population 
population at, at any time that has been out in mass marches and demonstrations protesting against this government month after month after month, and the United States media refuses to show those pictures, um, but they only show pictures of what they can show to be chaos or, again, criminal gangs or, again, trying to make it seem like there is anarchy, uh, and not in a good way, but anarchy in the streets uh, in Haiti, and only through the United States intervention will some solution be met. That's the goal of the U.S. propaganda system at this stage. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Kamal, this is a broad question, but I'm wondering, how do you see the issue of Haiti? Uh, uh, how should it factor, excuse me, into our uh, uh, anti-imperialist organizing? You know what I mean? It, it, it sort of feels like there are, you know, some organizations that will champion uh, the cause of Haiti, but it, it feels like it doesn't quite occupy the space within uh, anti-imperialist politics that it rightly should, particularly um, given its history, some of which we have laid out here. And so when we consider the geopolitical situation in a number of ways, and we consider how uh, conditions are uh, unfolding here in the U.S., what do you think it means for a, uh, particularly for a U.S.-based uh, uh, anti-imperialist movement to really be considering Haiti at this moment that both needs and deserves our deep solidarity? I think Haiti has to be centered in our anti-imperialist politics, um, particularly because of its closeness to the United States, the history of the invasions of the United States, the history of enslavement both here in the United States and in Haiti, um, the possible outcomes of what can be achieved in a small island nation like Haiti if it was allowed to be free and or freed itself, um, and again, joint forces, as I think would be the natural direction of Haiti, with other anti-imperialist uh, countries, organizations, and movements. So I think it's extremely important that Haiti be centered, that folks who are involved in movement politics and talking about what's happening around the world, that they have to understand that the only reason that Haiti is not a free and liberated country at this particular stage in its history is because of U.S.-based imperialism, U.S.-based desires and dollarism that keeps Haiti enslaved. And this is something that people can actually do something about. Much like the Palestinian struggle, where it is because uh, the Israeli government gets so much resources Resources from the United States that it is only that which allows the Israeli government to control uh, Palestinians and Palestinian land. If that money was dried up tomorrow, uh, Israel would be in a heap of trouble when it came to controlling the Palestinian populations. Very similarly, the Haitian elite, whether they, again the economic and or political elite, could not withstand the pushback from the masses of, of Haitian people without the support of U.S.-based elites, U.S.-based corporations. Um, and U.S. Uh, US based uh, economic and political support for those uh, for that Haitian elite. It is only through that support that the, that the Haitian elite has allowed to have been been able to reestablish or endure, establish and or keep its control over the economic system of Haiti. And so I think for those of us who practice anti-imperialist politics, who are out in the street calling for sort of reform or stopping U.S. foreign policy from enacting its imperialist whims on the world, Haiti has to be centered in that discussion. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary.
by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Kamau Franklin. And Kamau, switching gears a little bit, but still very much within the realm of U.S. imperialism. Um, reportedly, uh, the USS George H.W. Bush, uh, a naval ship, uh, uh, first christened in 06 and delivered to the Navy in 09, is currently in the Adriatic Sea leading Neptune Strike 2022, which is a NATO deployment uh, testing what's described as, quote, deterrence and defense in the Euro-Atlantic Area Now, obviously, this is happening uh, within the context of the rapidly escalating uh, uh, war uh, in Ukraine. And uh, there are other uh, partner nations and allies taking part in this uh, NATO war uh, exercise that includes Albania, Canada, Croatia, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Italy, Lithuania, North Macedonia, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Sweden, Turkey, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Now, according to uh, Vice Admiral Thomas Ishii, who's the commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet and Naval Striking Support Forces for NATO, said in a statement, quote, the Neptune series is a tangible demonstration of the power and capability of the NATO alliance in all domain operations. Neptune Strike 22.2 is a prime example of NATO's ability to integrate high-end maritime warfare capabilities of an allied carrier strike group, ensuring our collective ability to deter and defend. Now, you know, this all to me just sort of feels like, you know, a practice or a rehearsal, basically in case of um, an open conflict between the U.S. And Russia. And I think this almost feels like a sign that the U.S. is trying to get give off that they are, in fact, prepared to uh, uh, engage in that conflict uh, with Russia should the issue arise. And I just want to note that the longer things go on and the more things continue to escalate is the higher the risk of a provocation, even accidentally. You know what I mean? And so, you know, we're, we, you know, just about every day now, uh, Kamal, we're noting here on the show just about how dangerous the moment is that we're in in the United States as the escalation ladder uh, uh, is being climbed ever more rapidly here with all um, uh, uh, parties involved. And I mean, I tend to think that, frankly, I think the U.S. put a battery in the back of uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, which may has hardened his resolve against trying to have any kind of diplomatic talks or negotiations with Russia. But be that as it may, just uh, wondering what you think, Kamal, about where things stand uh, with the war in Ukraine uh, as of today and uh, uh, how you see it unfolding. Basically, a U.S. Uh, started or a, 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 a U.S.-based war, which obviously was started uh, in an attempt uh, to make Ukraine uh, part of the uh, NATO alliance. And I think the United States now is, uh, is somewhat bitten off more than what it could chew because it did not expect, against uh, again, the realigning of political elites during this moment of a multipolar sort of uh, world starting to develop. And what I mean by that is, you know, right now we are entering uh, the beginnings of winter. And in Western Europe, there the reliance on uh, Russian 
gas, Russian oil, is really starting to take effect and make an impact. I think this is scaring the United States because if this does start to take make an impact, uh, particularly with Germany and other uh, Western European countries, what we're looking at is some of them pulling out of directly the alliance and or making uh, uh, certain exceptions, particularly when it comes to purchasing Russian oil and gas, which gives the Russians more resources, which allows uh, the Russians to not be cornered, which is the idea that the United States is going on, thinking that these alliances would hold. And so I think this is for the United States part of these activities, these extra uh, sort of drumbeats of war activities and the threat of direct intervention is a way of themselves uh, being scared of the fact that their own alliance may not hold up. I think, again, we're in this very interesting time period where new alliances are happening and or old alliances are shifting. Um, and Western imperialism, although it's still extremely powerful in terms of world events, is starting to lose some of its overall strength and its ability to scare other nations uh, directly into heeding its call or heeding its will. And so I think what we're seeing being demonstrated in the UK, in the Ukraine uh, is just that, is that the, uh, the Russians saw, after giving warning after warning, that this was a red line for them. The invasion, I mean, the, the attempt to turn Ukraine into a NATO-based nation to have more weapons right on its border was something that they have said over and over again could not stand. And again, as we know, NATO's history has continually been since World War II to get as close to the Russian borders, if not to destroy uh, the Soviet Union as it did, but to get as close to the Russian borders as possible during that time period. And I think yeah, I think because we're entering this new time period where China is rising as a world power, Russia has sort of re-cemented its ideas that it will not necessarily be a partner or partner number B, uh, a B-roll partner to Western imperialism, that what we're seeing is in playing out in real time the impact of that. And so I think it's going to be an interesting uh, next several months to see what's happening with this alliance, how far it will go to try to push Russia, what negotiations can and or will happen. I think one of the reasons why we haven't had any negotiations up to this point has been the U.S., again, more than, than what we're getting from Zelensky, is the U.S. itself telling the, the Ukraine government not to negotiate. I think that is far more important and, again, is not receiving the proper media attention that there was a free media. The fact that you have an outside nation telling another nation not to negotiate, not to go to the table and talk, but in, instead to engage in a protracted war in which its own citizens will be the ones who are suffering, not the U.S. citizens in that way, um, is something to behold. And so I think this is, I think the imperialist reach and or arm of the U.S., um, again, although still strong, is starting to feel like as if it, will, it may not hold to this current phase of, of, the, of the battle. Yeah. And, you know, you're right when you sort of note not only how uh, Ukraine is a red line for uh, Russia, it, it, it's the reddest of red lines and, and has been for a while. And the U.S. is very aware of that and has known. I mean, some of its uh, own officials have uh, made this point very clear. I actually just finished uh, a book uh, 
uh, that came out uh, just in August. It was called it's called How the West Brought War to Ukraine, Understanding How U.S. and NATO Policies Led to Crisis War and the Risk of Nuclear Catastrophe. The author is named uh, Benjamin Abelo. I, I encourage people to actually pick this book up. It's less than 100 pages. It's not that huge, but it's a great primer. Uh, uh, to help people understand uh, some of the important context that led up to uh, uh, the war in Ukraine and the central role that uh, the U.S. and NATO played in that and uh, how NATO expansion historically has been a cause for concern, namely security concerns for Russia for some years. They've been very clear about that. And yet and still we, we continue to to see these completely foolhardy and frankly, uh, uh, potentially fatally foolish decisions by uh, the U.S. government. And see, this is a part of the issue is that the U.S. Um, always brushes off any legitimate security concerns from Russia as if Russia isn't allowed to have red lines or security concerns as much as any other country. The U.S. for one moment would not tolerate any of its red lines uh, uh, being being uh, uh, transgressed, if you will. But yet and still, since the U.S. has wanted desperately since the end of the Soviet Union has wanted desperately to try to bring uh, Russia into its sphere of influence. But, you know, uh, uh, leaders like uh, Vladimir Putin, who remember what uh, led up to uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, who saw the uh, uh, country looted and all those sorts of things. And they simply had no uh, intention of letting that happen again. And of course, Putin is just one person. But we're talking about historical incidents that left uh, a mark on the collective consciousness of the Russian people. So they all understand these dynamics quite well. They're not like people in the U.S. Uh, uh, with the short memories that we tend to have. But see, these are all things that aren't even allowed to enter the conversation because U.S. imperialism has so effectively shut off, uh, uh, you know, uh, any uh, uh, sort of appeal or access uh, really what I'm saying is they've uh, completely shrinking the uh, landscape is, is the word I'm looking for, for any alternative narrative of this situation that is against the Washington consensus. And it's all done in the name of fighting, quote unquote, misinformation. And so what I think is important to note here, uh, uh, Kamau, is that what we're experiencing right now far predates uh, February 24th, 2022, when Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. What we're actually looking at uh, are, the, uh, are the, the consequences and in many ways the conclusion of years of foolish policymaking and imperialist arrogance on the part of uh, the U.S. and the West. And frankly, as we point out on the show, it's up to us to pull humanity itself back from the brink of oblivion, because if we don't, then this capitalist ruling class will push, push us into an all out nuclear catastrophe. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, going back to uh, some of the thesis of our prior conversation in the last segment, it's the propaganda role of the U.S. media. When you read the New York Times, 
you're basically reading uh, the State Department's uh, new, uh, official newsletter, uh, the propaganda that just basically narrows debate and discussion around the interests of other nations beyond what the West claims their interest should be is something that's striking for any reader uh, who has any, uh, let's say, background in, in, in trying to find alternative views. If you have once read the New York Times and then you read alternative views and you go back to read it again, you can see exactly what it is that we mean. The New York Times structures its articles, its discussions, uh, strictly around a narrative that the West's interest is always about human rights first, always about democracy, always about caring for people, and that every other nation has no real legitimate interest. All of their governments are star are corrupt um, and need to be under either U.S. and or Western tutelage, um, listening to how to run an, uh, an economy from Western-backed corporations. Uh, it's only usually 40, 50, 60 years later that a, a newspaper like the New York Times might do a review of a, cur- of a situation that happened in the past and then present you uh, with some of the quote-unquote mistakes, as it'll be termed, that U.S. policymakers made. But as these things are actively going, the media Media in the United States acts as the cheerleaders, which says this is what should be happening. Uh, um, the, the Russia clearly has no interest, which which the United States needs to take seriously, um, and that these uh, that the, the role of the United States is to protect these these countries from from big bad Russia. That is the narrative that you get. That is the narrative that is fed. And even though, again, I think it's important to note we are in a time period where there's a realignment of political elites where what was once considered right-wing dogma of invasion is now somewhat subtle by uh, going back to a stage of, of of isolation for the United States where your sort of liberal uh, so-called left politicians or elected officials in the Democratic Party are, are pushing more than anybody um, the call for war. And so as this realignment happens, that you still have to understand that the, that the U.S. imperialist system is strong, that that propaganda system is strong. And again, it's only through, like you said, us breaking away and understanding how this system works, and quite frankly, other nation states that are powerful enough to resist um, the United States and the Western sort of imperialist drive. Uh, that's the only way we're going to start to see this kind of change. Yeah, that's definitely the case. That's definitely the case. And I mean, when you when you uh, describe the NYT as a State Department newsletter, I mean, that's that that's absolutely true. I mean, this is why we say that so many of the people that call themselves uh, journalists uh, here in the U.S. at these corporate platforms, uh, you know, they're really stenographers for the ruling class. They, they serve as a bullhorn for imperialism. And this consistent and incessant uh, propaganda is precisely what cements these narratives in the consciousness of the American people, putting us in a situation where it seems like we're all just whistling past the graveyard and seemingly not aware of the uh, uh, potentially civilization ending uh, potential of this war in Ukraine because people are being consistently misinformed and lied to not by the, you know, the big bad Russian propaganda, but by these long running outlets that uh, uh, over the years uh, have been seen as legitimate by broad swaths of people in this country. I'm talking about the New York Times, the paper of record, the Washington Post, arguably the number two uh, uh, paper in this country. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, 
The Hill, Politico, all of these uh, uh, sorts of platforms that sort of say different versions of the same thing. And sometimes the versions ain't even that different. And you also touched on something that that I've also noticed, Kamal, in the fact that now to, to, to be critical of the war in Ukraine and the U.S.'s war in it specifically, to be anti-war, to be anti-imperialist is being treated as a right wing politic. You know what I mean? And so since the Republicans are talking about they want to uh, cut off aid to Ukraine if they come back in power during the midterms, because I think shrewdly they've picked up on the fact that a lot of Americans are questioning why so much aid is going to Ukraine. Because of that, now you're basically seeing as being pro-Republican, pro-Trump, if you dare uh, criticize the U.S. And, and its role in this war. And so this is a part of the existential threat that we're all living through in this moment. So without question, it would be in our best interest to organize and to organize a, a kind of uh, a, a movement with the clarity around just what the issues are, how U.S. imperialism connects to what we're experiencing here in the U.S and fight like hell to stop this from happening because if we don't then uh, the results will be dark to say the very least but we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in washington dc we'll be right back so please stay with us by any means necessary Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Kamal Franklin is here. Want to give a big shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Be sure to pat that plus on Rumble. We are currently at 468 subscribers on Rumble. So we'll be at a million before you know it. A uh, shout out to Big Teal in the chat. Uh, they said, quote, that's what the State Department calls collateral damage, no accountability. And uh, you're absolutely right. And this is something else that because of the propaganda goes over a lot of people's heads in this country. The very same Ukrainian people that the U.S claims to care so much about that made the Ukrainian people a cause celebra of the American people do not care one whit about the Ukrainian people. If they did, then number one, they wouldn't have instigated and facilitated this conflict to begin with. Number two, uh, they also wouldn't have scuttled some of those early opportunities to uh, uh, have a diplomatic end to this conflict, thereby helping set the stage for where things are now, where seemingly all sides are digging their heels in more and more and more. We said it from the beginning of this conflict and we'll say it again because it's true. The U.S. is more than willing to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. So the U.S. is all too happy to let the Ukrainian people uh, be the ones that are filling the body bags and filling the graves of this war, and I don't mean to be graphic, but that's the reality of it. Because if it's one thing that the U.S. government understands is that if it were American people, American troops 
that were coming home in the body bags and we got to sort of see the real impact of this war, similar to, uh, say, Vietnam, then that would trigger a political backlash against the U.S. And so they take the uh, conflict uh, to Ukraine and let the bodies fall there. This is the callousness, the cynicism, the inhumanity of uh, U.S. imperialism. And this is what you and I are being asked to support. But of course, not only out of uh, sheer morality, but out of understanding about the implications this has for humanity, we simply cannot. Uh, Presser John too says the U.S. government is largely privatized and used as a PR company to advance capital and resource thefts. I uh, definitely think that's true. Uh, 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 2F says, Slick how the Republicans are spinning that they're against the war. They're also actively funding and supporting. Yeah, this, see, this, this is the dog and pony show, right? <laughs> this is the political theater that we're all subject to. Of course, the Republicans are not anti-war. The capitalist class in the United States is in lockstep when it comes to you. U.S. war and imperialism, right? And so we know that this is just a, a ploy for electoral support that very well may work. But we've got a caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Well, you know, Sean, great show. Uh, but unfortunately, all empires have to come to an end. It's been estimated 150, 200 years. We're almost there. We saw what happened to the British Empire in the uh, situation in the Suez Canal they bungled that, and then after that, they lost their power, and the U.S. took over. Our uh, Suez Canal will be Ukraine, because what I predict is that once the European allies, the vassals, realize that they're the Trumps, they'll, they're they they're not going to have money to pay for their energy bill. The U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Why would they do that if it was Russia? That would be against their interest. It was us. Now that they don't have the oil, cha-ching! We're going to charge all you Trumps and NATO who are vassals to buy our oil at, at ten, 10 times as much as you were paying before you blew up the pipeline from Russia. So this is going to have a, a terrible blowback effect on the Europeans, and maybe they'll wake up, family. I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate you calling. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, come out. Your thoughts. Yeah, I think he's correct. I think this is, uh, you know, it may not obviously be the end of the alliance, but I think, you know, for the last six, seven, eight years, this alliance has been shifting. And some of it, of course, is is due to the, the racism of Western Europe in terms of the that it started with the United States and then the uh, the refugees that have come over to European lands, which got them going, uh-oh, uh, a certain percentage of them, uh, backing more right-wing anti-immigration policies and got them thinking, we need to pull out some of these wars. Um, we need to, to at least find another way to fight them so that these uh, uh, larger immigrant populations don't come. And one of those ways is a larger uh, right-wing uh, populist uh, thinking that, again, also took hold here, which is more of an isolationist thinking. They're not opposed to imperialism. They're opposed to the impact and effects of that imperialism, particularly when it means having brown people and black people 
come to their country. And so you're seeing this divergence of interest that is starting to take hold amongst elites, both uh, in, in America and in Europe. Western elites are now fighting over what is the best way that, that they think is, 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 is going to sort of enact them, uh, continue to enact their ability to control world economics, but stop uh, the browning of their uh, the browning of their countries. And I think that's what makes part of this an interesting moment, you know, to look at, to take a step back and look at it, is that as these internal elites are fighting, um, uh, what's happening is that other nation states are gaining strength. Uh, whether folks like them, China is gaining strength. Uh, the Russians are gaining strength. Even India, Iran, other nation states are starting to gain strength and strength and countering uh, Western imperialist antics. Um, again, not strong enough to defeat them, but strong enough to start offering a counter to what's going on and making that alliance a little weaker, which allows some breathing room for other nations to exert their own energy and, and try to get, protect their own freedoms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just listening to what you're saying, Kamau, and thinking back <clears throat> over our conversation so for this hour, it it's just so clear that. The movement that we say every single day on this show has to be built to protect our democratic rights, to bring an end to potentially catastrophic war, a movement against white supremacy, a movement against imperialism, a movement against this capitalist system. And in reality, that movement, I think, has to be, at least at some point, a movement towards an overturning of capitalism and a movement towards a socialist reconstruction of the United States. But what I'm saying is that it's so clear that that movement, that militant, organized, class-conscious movement is literally a part of the fight for our lives. That's not an exaggeration because the way I see it, it feels like we're fundamentally fighting on two fronts. We have the sort of immediate conditions that we're faced with in the U.S. And then there's the international question that's directly uh, uh, connected to that. That also poses uh, an existential threat, as we've been discussing. And the reason I just wanted to say that and use those words, Kamau, is because I think people sometimes still have this conception of organizing and activism or movement building as like a, like a hobby, you know what I'm saying? Like something you do when you get off work, you got a little time on your hands, you know, instead of, uh, you know, watching a YouTube video or something, you'll go do some movement stuff. Well, it, it, it's deeper than that. This is, it, this is not a lifestyle type of thing. It's not something you do just because it's cool or because it's the it thing. We do it not only because we have a duty to ourselves, to our class, and to the struggling peoples of this earth, but also because uh, 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 we understand that this is quite literally what will save us and uh, uh, humanity from reaching that point of no return. And uh, like I say, I feel like uh, people in this country have been put in a position where they've been told to ignore all of that. You know what I mean? And that is a big part of what has led us to this moment. But I want to squeeze in another call here uh, before we get out of here today. Uh, ben, tell us what's on your mind. 
Oh, no, sir. I just had a question for the host. You know, I listen to you and I listen to all the truths that you tell. But does it bother you or do, do you feel guilty about the fact that the same things that you talk about today are the very things that killed Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, but um, that you are uh, allowed to uh, tell these truths that they were actually assassinated for? And uh, that's my uh, question to you. Okay, well, thanks for calling in, Ben. Hope to hear from you again soon. It's an interesting question, and what we have to remember is the terror that resides in the consciousness of so many people in this country when it comes to radicalism, we could broadly call it, uh, you know, uh, uh, building movements and all those sorts of things like uh, uh, Martin King and uh, Malcolm X did. That terror was placed there for a reason. I always note the fact when we talk about King and Malcolm, you're talking about two men who were in organizations who were organizers and uh, mobilizers, though I would argue Malcolm was a bit of a better organizer than King. King was a masterful uh, uh, mobilizer. Uh, They were both killed publicly, shot, killed publicly. This is a part of the terror. And we know from the documents of the FBI and Pro, they specifically said that for young people, that if they wanted to be revolutionaries and they need to understand that they'll be dead revolutionaries. And so when we look at the deadly suppression of movements, organizations, and leaders throughout the history of this country, and just this one, which is deep all by itself. When you get outside in the world, it is a whole lot more, right, that the U.S. also had a hand in. Uh, uh, so when we think of organizing, when we think of Black Lives Matter, when we think of anti-imperialism, when we think of struggling for socialism, when we think of all the different issues that uh, we, we struggle around, we are supposed to have this fear That if we go too far, that if we step outside the bounds of what's deemed acceptable by the same capitalist state apparatus that wants to kill us, right? We're supposed to be afraid that if we step outside of that, then some harm may come to us or the people that we love. So does the fact that that is the history and the reality, does that bother me? Well, yeah. Because it is a big part of what has made such a poisonous landscape uh, politically here in the United States. The suppression of the different people's struggles, the virulent and vicious and also brutal anti-communism that so colors the politics in uh, uh, this country. So understanding it is one thing. The real question is, are we cowed by it? Are we going to be forced into a place of cowardice and fear and ultimately inactivity? Because that's the point. They don't. uh, And when I say they, I mean uh, the capitalist state. They don't simply want us to, to fear these things just just to do it. The ultimate goal is for us to become demobilized and discouraged from this kind of militant, organized uh, movement and effort that we know is necessary and that we talk about every single day on the show and that you all talk about so often on Black Power Media, I know uh, uh, as well. Matter of fact, literally just yesterday, 
Somebody told me that they joined an organization because of uh, the constant appeals on BPM about joining an organization. That's what we're supposed to do. Just like when I go to events and people tell me, and this has happened, people say, Sean, I'm here and a part of this struggle because of the way y'all talked about it on by any means necessary. So what I'm saying, my friends, is that we have to recognize all of these different tactics that are meant to silence us, that are meant to take us out the game, to make us seem illegitimate, to make us seem out of our minds, seem like we don't know what we're talking about or that we're a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, 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 dreamers and people who get caught up in, in utopian fantasies, all these sorts of things. We have to recognize it, recognize the impact that it has on our people and our class that we desperately will need to move in the millions if we really do want to change the system in this country. And we have to organize and fight to push through it. That is the only thing that is going to, I think, really address all of those uh, sorts of things. So ultimately, in my opinion, then, Kamau, there's really no shortcut for building this movement and doing this kind of uh, political education work along with the on the ground, uh, uh, grassroots, door knocking aspect of things that is crucial to building this thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you laid it out perfectly. Um, I, you know, I was sitting here going, preach, brother, preach. Because, I, <laughs> you know, the, the issue that we have these days is that organizers and activists, even those involved, um, and I think a lot of it is through the propaganda system, a lot of it is through the economic distress that this uh, country purposely puts on poor and working class people, um, and the distractions that we're given to think that instead of working to free ourselves, to liberate ourselves, to challenge our economic and political oppressors, that we should get lost in entertainment, that those things are purposely put in front of us to stop us from movement building, to stop us some organizing because the elite powers know that when folks are out in the street and political organizing is happening, that is when the masses are at their most dangerous, when they will potentially overturn the state, change the dynamics of what's happening, and the, and the, the powers that be will use by any means that they can to stop us from doing it. Everything from assassination to imprisonment to discouragement to uh, uh, disheartment, anything that they can use at, that's at their disposal to stop the growth of a movement in the United States is what they will do. And we, we as the folks who are saying that we have to do this kind of organizing work, have to understand that and take the work that we do so much more seriously, so much more, much, much, uh, must we be on point to organize for the things that we know that we need to have happen and, um, amongst ourselves in order to organize and push back against this capitalist monster. So you are completely correct that those are the things that we must do. Like, like it's no easy, it's nothing easy about it. It's something that we have to pull together and do, it's something that's a day to day action and activity. We have to grow our ranks tremendously. We can't be satisfied with five, 10, 15 person organizations. Our organizations have to be not only in the hundreds, but in the thousands to be impactful and effective in pushing back this monster of capitalism. Absolutely. And, you know, before we get out of here today, I just want to say something I don't think I've ever said in explicit terms on this show. I have so much faith in us talking about our class, our movement. I have so much faith in us to be able to 
not only organized to fight on these different issues we've been discussing, but to literally bring about a new system and a new society in this country. If I'm being honest, I my only hope is in the movement to actually do that when we see uh, uh, this death cult that we call the, the capitalist ruling class. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. And one thing, Kamal Franklin, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.